There's so much respect for you just to, to, in a sense, dedicate your lives to the cause of Christ, and specifically this component of the gospel message, defending Genesis, defending the, you know, the, the foundations of our faith. So it's really awesome. Um, their ministry, Creation Ministries International, is, they've impacted my life so powerfully over the last 15 plus years. It's just, you know, I've, I've seen this. If you, it's, it's hard to believe something in your heart when your mind rejects it. It's hard to believe with all your heart that God is real, that Jesus loves us, He died for us on the cross, but there are all these questions, all these things in our, in our minds that says, oh, but you know, what about that? What about Cain's wife? And what about this? And oh, Noah's ark, I mean, can it be real? All those things. You know, I've often said it to, to, to our guys, you know, I'm not willing to give my life to a fairy tale. I'm not willing to sacrifice my life to a, a nice idea, but it's not real. It's not true. And that's what I love about, about this ministry, Creation Ministries International. They, they, in a sense, connect the scriptures with the real world out there around us. And I, I love that. You know, it's not just a, our faith is not just a spiritual concept out there. It's, you know, when you walk out here, you look at the tree evidence for God. You look in the mirror, you see yourself, evidence for God. It's, it's everywhere, you know? And so, so they've played a massive role. Their ministry, their resources, all the books and videos and things really made a massive impact on me. And I'm trusting will make a huge impact on you tonight. So, so um, Mark's going to tackle racism as well and ta- tackle that topic. And uh, it's just really going to be powerful. So looking forward to it. Let's, let's welcome Mark. Pastor Andre, thank you so much. You say you, you respect us for giving our lives to this message, but I cannot tell you how much this message is a blessing and God's grace in our lives. And uh, getting to go around and speak in churches around the country, a uh, number of shofar churches that we've ministered in over the years, and you folks are always such an incredible encouragement to, to us. And we're so grateful to the Lord for this opportunity to come and speak once again. And tonight we're going to be dealing with the subject of race, people groups. And it is a question that people have many questions, or it is a question that me, people think about and just don't know quite how to put it to get, uh, all together after, a meeting this, after the meeting this morning. I had a couple of people come and say they couldn't make it tonight. They were just really disappointed that they couldn't come. But they had questions on this question of race or people groups, because the Bible never talks about race. It talks about people groups, tribes, nations, cultures, language, never speaks about race. But it all goes back to origins to be able to answer these questions about dinosaurs and fossils and canyons and people groups, all of these questions that goes back to origins. And how did it all begin? And uh, questions like, where did Cain get his wife if he wasn't able? (laughs) And I had that question this morning. And we get it regularly. So we regard ourselves as a, an information ministry. We've got offices in seven countries around the world. We've got 12 PhD scientists that work for us full-time and many, many others supporting us in universities all over the world as well as uh, in industry and so on. And we produce this information and we share it with people in many ways. Firstly, our website, powerful website. We've got about 10,000 articles on there going back more than 30 years of creation research, and uh, 
powerful search engine, topical index, put just about anything you can think of into there, uh, into the search engine, and it'll list a number of articles on that subject to do with origins. And it's creation.com. It's so very easy to remember. And that's a free resource. You know, if you're in a discussion at work or at school or university, something that you can't, a uh, question that you can't answer, and none of us have got all the answers, not one of us. Even as a ministry, we don't have all the answers. But a resource like this can be a tremendous help. Go home, do a bit of study on it, come back, and you can share that with your colleague or your friend at school. And, you know, this can create opportunities to share the Word of God with people and to share the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's ultimately what it's all about. So that's creation.com. We've also got a, uh, an Infobytes. Uh, what we do with this, people that are on our mailing list, if something new is going on in the world, a new fossil find, a new dinosaur find, or so-called hominin ancestor find or, or claim, very soon one of our writers will write an article and we send it to everybody on our mailing list. Last year, Home and a Lady, maybe some of you remember that. Very quickly, there we had an article out and a month later we had another article out on Home and a Lady. And so our question before us uh, this, morning, uh, this evening is the question of race. And it is a very topical question, isn't it? It keeps on raising its head. Uh, people say insensitive, sometimes outright racist things, sometimes just naive things. But certainly the question of race is very important for us to tackle. And how do we do that? Well, there are two basic views of people groups. And just like most of the big questions in life, the Bible gives us a wonderful understanding a wonderful framework of understanding the world in which we live, the universe in which we live. The Bible gives us the, the most important events in the history of the universe, beginning with the supernatural creation by God a few thousand years ago, including the first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve, the ancestors of all of us here. Shortly after creation, the federal head of God's creation, Adam rebelled against his creator. He sinned and the curse resulted. Corruption came. Romans chapter 8 tells us this whole universe began to decay. It began to die. And then about 1,600 years after creation, because of ongoing rebellion, sin, sexual perversion, demonic activity, violence in the earth, God sent a year-long catastrophic flood of Noah's day, to judge the world, a global year-long flood, and to make a new beginning. And then about 200 years after, after the flood, uh, man continued to stick together. There was only one language spoken. And at a place called Babel, uh, they began some kind of man-made religion, building this tower to the heavens, and God confused their languages. And maybe different family groups could no longer communicate with each other, and they abandoned that, uh, that project at Babel and began to spread out on the face of the earth and fill the earth as God had commanded Noah and his family after the flood. So that's the confusion of languages at Babel. And then 2,000 years ago, the eternally begotten Son of God, the Creator Himself, took upon Him the form of a man, came into His creation to die on the cross, to put right what went wrong back there at corruption, and to make possible a future consummation, a future restoration of all things. 
and parents, young people here this evening, I'm going to tell you that that is the most powerful heritage that you can give yourselves or pass on to your children or your grandchildren, that heritage of a biblical framework of understanding the world in which we live. And it just makes sense of the world in which we live. And a very important part of that framework is the Bible's truth of who we are, created in God's image. Male and female, God created us in His image. And that's the reason why we laugh and love and communicate and invent things and paint things and make beautiful music. Because we are uniquely created in the image of God. Unique, separate from the animal kingdom. The Bible goes on to tell us that we are all descended from Eve. Adam named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. Think about the accuracy of the Bible. Why does the Bible not tell us that Adam was the father of all living? And yet Eve tells us that she, uh, the Bible tells us that Eve was the mother of all living. Who was the one exception that wasn't born of the seed of Adam? Jesus Christ the Savior. And yet we're all descended from Eve, and we'll come back to that just now, just showing the incredible inspiration of the Bible. And then in the New Testament, Paul, uh, speaking to the Greeks on Mars Hill, he said the same thing, that God made from one man or one blood, who was that man? Adam. Every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Do you know modern science, Western science, was born within that worldview? a belief that God's word was the truth, an acceptance of the authority of God's word, an acceptance of the truth of the account of origins that we find in Genesis. Probably your most famous scientist ever, Sir Isaac Newton. Do you know that he wrote more on the Bible than on science? He believed that the Bible was God's inspired word. This was the worldview of people like William Wilberforce, the one individual that was most responsible for ridding most of the world of the scourge of the African slave trade. He fought for thirty more than 30 years in the British Parliament to get them first to eradicate the slave trade, and later on, just a short time before his death, they uh, eradicated or they banned slavery altogether. He was an evangelical, born-again, Bible-believing Christian. And many of those that were part of that movement believed the same thing. They believed in God's Word. And so they believed that their fellow men from Africa were created in the image of God. And do you know that when the British took over the, uh, Western, or the Cape Colony from the Dutch, when they got their own constitution in 1853, there was a voter's role that, that was colorblind. Men had the vote based on exactly the same voting franchise back in England, based on education and property ownership, irrespective of whether people were white or black or colored. But something began to change by the end of the 19th century. Something dramatic in the Western world began to change, and terrible things began to happen all over the world, North America, in Australia, we spoke this morning about a genocide right here in Africa. In Australia, uh, Aboriginal people were shot and their body parts sent as specimens back to universities in Europe. A German lady, Emily Dietrich, named the Angel of Black Death, came to Australia, 
She went round to cattle stations asking for aboriginals to be shot as specimens. We know that we, she was chased off some cattle stations, but we also know that she returned to Europe with her specimens. Uh, one New South Wales missionary was the horrified eyewitness to a group of Mounties that murdered dozens of Aboriginal men, women, and children. And the best so-called specimens were selected from those people that were murdered and their body parts packed in crates and sent back to Europe, to universities in Europe. Unfortunately, even the church became infected with these ideas. Charles Kingsley, an Anglican curate, uh, the writer of The Water Babies, said this, The black people of Australia are exactly the same race as the African Negro. They cannot take in the gospel. All attempts to bring them to a knowledge of the true God have as yet utterly failed. Poor brutes in human shape. They must perish off the face of the earth like brute beasts. What had happened? What had changed? Well, do you know, there are some evolutionists that recognize what changed. Stephen Jay Gould, one of the most influential evolutionists of the 20th century, he said, biological arguments for racism may have been common before 1850, but they increased by orders of magnitude following the acceptance of evolutionary theory. So he, he's an, he was an evolutionist. He, he died a few years ago. He was an evolutionist, and yet he recognized the connection between the, the racism of the 20th century and a belief in Darwinian evolution. Darwin's book, The Origin of Species, that kind of started this all in the modern era, uh, the subtitle of that book is The Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. A few years after publishing that book, Darwin wrote another book, The Descent of Man. And in it he said things like this, at some future period, not very distant, the civilized races of man will almost certainly exterminate and replace the savage races. And the Western world moved from believing that we were equally created in the image of God to this idea, vertical idea of so-called civilized and savage races. And these ideas began to be taught all over the Western world, and in fact, the Western world, including here in Southern Africa, um, G.K. Chesterton, the famous Christian writer, said this of Cecil John Rhodes, what he called his ideals were the dregs of Darwinism, which had already grown not only stagnant, but poisonous. I want to say Cecil John Rhodes did some remarkable things. He also did some savage, terrible things uh, in southern Africa, and he was very, very open about the fact that he was motivated by Darwinian evolution and these ideas of so-called civilized and savage races, and all of this culminated in the horrors of the Second World War and the genocide against the Jews and gypsies and homosexuals and, and, and handicapped people, and at that stage, the Western world, scientists throughout the Western world, they saw where this evolutionary race science was all heading. And thank God they took a step back from that. And so I'm not saying today that people that believe in evolution are racist. But you know, our view of who we are and who our fellow neighbors are has not improved much based on evolution. Here's Sir Francis Crick, co-discoverer of the double helix structure of DNA, along with Watson. He said this, you... Your joys and your sorrows, your memories, your ambitions, sense of personal identity, free will, 
are in fact no more than the behavior of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules. Who you are is nothing but a pack of neurons. We've gone in the Western world from created in the image of God to nothing but a pack of neurons. And you know, that is the logical conclusion of the idea that we got here by millions of years of time and chance, random processes were just some kind of uh, cosmic accident. And that is the worldview that is informing our young people at school and university today. That same scientist, Ernst Heichel, was responsible for these drawings. The idea that we all had some, uh, uh, that your various vertebrate mammals had the same ancestry, the same evolutionary past, and that a stage in the embryonic growth, they all looked the same, and the human embryo would go through various stages a, a reptile stage, a fish stage, and a monkey stage. Even back in his day, his fellow scientists recognized that that was a figment of his imagination. This is what those various embryos look like. But those drawings were used in biology textbooks and evolutionary textbooks at school and universities right up until the end of the 20th century, and they still crop up from time to time. They were absolute fabrications. But those ideas were used to promote abortion in the 1960s and the 1970s, to teach women, teach ladies, that they weren't really aborting a baby. It was just going through a fish stage or a reptile stage. And that was an influence. Those ideas were extremely influenced in the founder of, uh, uh, of the um, Planned Parenthood movement. Part of the abortion industry around the world today. Margaret Sanger, she was a convinced Darwinist, an evolutionist. And she said things like this, the Aboriginal Australian is the lowest known species of the human family, just a step higher than the chimpanzee in brain development, has so little sexual control that police authority alone prevents him from obtaining sexual satisfaction on the streets. Although she at that time wasn't in favor of abortion, she set up her... Um, uh, her clinics for the express purpose in America of trying to get rid of and keep down what she regarded as unwanted inferior races, black people. And even today, although African Americans are about 13% of the population, about 40% of abortions in America are black babies, unborn black babies. And here in South Africa, one every two and a half minutes, 600 a day, 200,000 a year innocent black babies, mainly black, are murdered in their mother's womb, assisted by the state. And all of this was motivated in the early days of abortion by a belief in evolution. And evolution is also responsible for this image which we see all over the place in adverts, textbooks, Marupeng, you go to the, the so-called cradle of humankind and you see that image everywhere. Now, it's not always uh, depicted like this, but it quite often is. Not only this idea that we've evolved from those, these ape-like creatures, but what is the other subtle kind of message of that iconic image? What's the other image there, uh, the other message there? Not only that we've gone from animals to human beings, 
but from black, dark skin to light to this blonde-haired, blue-eyed Swede on the end here. So there is often a very subtle uh, racist image in that depiction. Well, hasn't the science somehow proven that evolution is true? And we have to somehow believe it. If we're believers, if we're Christians, we have to somehow fit it into the Bible. Well, this claims to be God's inspired word. We shouldn't be reinterpreting the Bible based on the constantly changing ideas of men. We should be evaluating the ideas of men in the light of God's Word. But let's just think about the science. And there are two broad categories of science. Let's say some remote civilization suddenly came across an internal combustion engine. And they'd never seen it before. And they put their best minds to studying this engine over decades, and they began to understand principles of internal combustion, thermodynamics, uh, Newtonian laws of uh, motion and inertia, uh, engineering principles, metallurgy, uh, electrical principles, and over time they completely began to understand the workings of the internal combustion engine and even how to reproduce it and use these engines for the use of their society. We would call that operational science, science that can be done in a laboratory or out in the field, that can be repeated, tested, observed. doesn't matter whether a scientist is an atheist or a Christian. They will do the same, uh, op- uh, the same experiments, make the same observations, and broadly get the same results. But the question is, that process, that type of science, would it tell us anything about the origin of the internal combustion engine. Nothing. It would tell us nothing about Hagen's and his beginning to use dynamite to force water through a barrel to power a water fountain. It would tell us nothing of Barsanti and Matusi's four-stroke engine in 1853 or Otto and Langen's engine of 1863, Carl Benz's patented automobile and engine of 1886, design teams, uh, computer-aided design used in automobile design, uh, production lines, even robotic production lines, all leading to the existence of the internal combustion engine. What would we call that discipline of trying to discover the origin of engine? What would we call that discipline? The study of history. It's a different type of science. It's historical or origins science. And history cannot be repeated. It cannot be observed. It can't be experimented upon. And so it's a, when we try and look at the origin of something, when it lived, how it died, how it was fossilized, it's a different type of science. And when it comes to that historical or origin science, our worldview, our belief system, plays a hugely important role in the way in which we interpret the evidence. And with the so-called enlightenment, scientists began to reject the authority of God's Word and to say, no, we're not allowed any authority in our lives. We can only appeal to scientific explanations for origins and for our science. And that gave rise to philosophical naturalism. So if we reject God as the creator, there's only one other option, that somehow the universe created itself, and that is philosophical naturalism. 
And the, the dominant worldview in philosophical naturalism today begins with the Big Bang uh, 13.7 billion years ago, and then a process of natural law, natural processes over billions of years, and here on earth, process of death, suffering, bloodshed, and disease over millions of years, leading to the existence of mankind. By the way, hundreds of secular scientists are abandoning the Big Bang. They realize it doesn't work. It doesn't, it's in a contradiction of all of our observations, and they're looking for new cosmologies. And we thought the Big Bang was science, right? It's not. It's an interpretation of the astronomy and of the stars and, and the universe. And there are many evolutionists that recognize this distinction and how their worldview drives their interpretation of the evidence. Professor Darren Kernow He's an Australian paleoanthropologist. He said this, Nobody looks at a fossil with a completely open mind. I suppose to some extent also we see what we think. So you come to a fossil, you've got an idea about the way you think human evolution worked, and the first thing you do is try and fit that fossil into your worldview. So what is he telling you there? He's saying that his worldview drives his interpretation of the evidence. It's not the other way around. One of your so-called uh, primary evidences for the evolution of ape-like creatures to modern human beings for decades was Piltdown Man. From 1912 to 1954, the Piltdown Man was used as evidence for the e evolution of mankind. It was only in 1954, that scientists noticed that it was actually a human cranium that had been fitted with the jaw of an orangutan. And that jaw had been filed to make it fit. Now, evolutionists today recognize that that was a fraud. So I'm not saying that they still believe that. But for 40 years, many, many scientists looked at that fossil and never recognized that it was a fraud. And so what it reinforces is the incredibly subjective nature of interpreting the evidence about the past. Another example, Neanderthals, they were once believed to be ancestral to uh, modern human beings, Homo sapiens, and then later on as some kind of side branch, extinct side branch, and they were depicted as these very ape-like creatures covered in hair, and uh, that's how they used to be put, uh, depicted. As a, as a ministry, we've always said no Neanderthals were people, just a variation of mankind. They buried their dead with flowers, they did art, they lived in caves, used tools, all sorts of things. Well, science evolutionists are starting to catch up, and they found that 1% uh, of modern Europeans share distinct genetic sequences, DNA sequences, with what were thought to be unique Neanderthal sequences. In other words, these Neanderthal people interbred with Europeans or the ancestors of Europeans. And so this is how Neanderthals are now reconstructed. I don't know about East London, but we probably could come across that fellow on the streets of Cape Town. And uh, he looks a little bit like Chuck Norris on a bad hair day. <laughs> so you see how perception about a belief's worldview drives the interpretation of the past and of origins. And a lot of your search for our so-called hominin or human ancestry has taken place 
right here in Africa. Darwin believed that these hypothetical human ancestors would be found on the African continent. Why is that? In that same book, The Descent of Man, he believed that modern Africans were more closely related to these ancestors than Europeans. And so he believed that the remains of these human ancestors would be found in Africa. And you go to a place like the Origin Center at Witz, very, very interesting to go and visit, but they've got all these neat arrays, these drawers arranged at the bottom, Australopithecines, and then Homo erectus, and then modern human beings, including uh, Neanderthals, and this is all portrayed as absolute science, proven science, our human ancestry. Do you know there are many evolutionists that reject that model of human evolution? They've got different models. They believe in evolution, but they've just got different models. One example, Dr. Charles Oxnard, uh, he's done extensive studies on, on the Australopithecus. And his conclusion is that Australopithecines are just an extinct species of knuckle-walking, tree-swinging apes. They've got nothing to do with human, evolu- uh, human evolution. He's got a different story of evolution. And, of course, last year, Homo naledi. This, by the way, is a model of the Homo naledi skull, and um, it's a plastic model. And, but this was announced to huge fanfare. It was on all the international news stations, South African news stations, uh, television, radio, newspapers, politicians, Cyril Ramaphosa kissing this fossil, all sorts of things. And there are massive, massive problems with that announcement. Lee Berger is getting huge criticism from his fellow evolutionists about, for all sorts of reasons. I don't have time to go into it now. But let me just point one thing to you. There you can see in the background there, National Geographic, they are a sponsor of Lee Berger. In the online article, the National Geographic online article uh, that, uh, that dealt with Homo naledi, I found this passage there were those two cavers that discovered the remains up there in the Sterkfontein area. And this information came from them, but it was what was on the floor that drew the two men's attention. There were bones everywhere. The cavers first thought they must be modern. They weren't stone heavy like most fossils. They were encased in, nor were they encased in stone. They were just lying about on the surface as if someone had tossed them in. It was clear from the arrangement of the bones that someone had already been there, perhaps decades before. Now, who read that in the newspapers or saw it in television? But it's right there on National Geographic on their online article. Now, we don't know all that that means, but it should at least, the alarm bells should go up and to say there's something major wrong with that interpretation of the evidence. Now, also, they were not fossilized. So here's a, a mineralized fossil of a, uh, an ammonite. Um, might want to pass that around. So that's been totally mineralized, but those remains of Homo naledi were bone. They were not mineralized at all. We offered to pay to have those bones carbon-14 dated, and we spoke a little bit about carbon-14 this morning, and they're ignoring us. We sent an email to Professor uh, um, 
uh, Lee Berger to the university. We put it out on the radio on articles, and they're ignoring us. We said we will pay to have them carbon-14 dated because we know the results of carbon-14 dating would totally destroy Lee Berger's hypothesis. He's trying to put home an lady at about 2 million years old, and the discovery of carbon-14 would blow that out of the water. But I won't go that into, into that now. Unfortunately, well-meaning Christians have tried to fit evolution and deep time into the Bible and have developed all sorts of models that have scientific problems, but they also have massive theological, doctrinal problems. And you know your atheists know this. Jerry Coyne, atheist biology professor, he said, attempts to reconcile God and evolution keep rolling off the intellectual assembly line. It never stops because the reconciliation never works. There are many atheists like this that know what the Bible says. They know a lot of Christian doctrine, and they know what it does to orthodox Christian doctrine if you try and fit deep time into the Bible. Let's just look at one example. When God had finished creating, Genesis chapter 1 tells us on the sixth day, when he had finished creating, including Adam and Eve, the first man and the first woman, God looked at his finished creation and he said, it is very good. Now the problem is if we try and fit deep time and the, the evolutionary dating system into the Bible... It means that by the time God had finished creating, including Adam and Eve, he was looking at a Garden of Eden that was sitting on layer upon layer, a record of death, suffering, cancer, carnivory, bloodshed. And God looked at that and said, it is very good. They would, it would also have been sitting on the remains of these Neanderthals who evolutionists put at 400,000 years ago, and Homo erectus, 1.7 million years ago, who even Homo erectus, there is more and more indication they were just a variation of mankind, just as we get variations amongst different people groups today. And you have to put, if you take the evolutionary dating method, you have to put the death and suffering and cancer of those creatures long before any possible date for Adam and Eve. And that's led to the church coming up with strange ideas like pre-Adamites, uh, these creatures that look like humans, behave like humans, but they had no souls, they couldn't be saved. At a stage in the 20th century, it was even said that black people were the descendants of these pre-Adamites. Well, what happened? The Bible tells us God created an earth without sin, without suffering, without death. And he put Adam, the federal head of his creation, into this perfect environment. And he said to Adam, Adam, have a, have a ball. Eat of the fruits of the trees, the herbs of the field. He gave the same diet to animals. But as a moral being created in God's image, God gave him one restriction, to not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eve was deceived by Satan. She ate of it. She gave to Adam. He ate of it. And they immediately died spiritually. The relationship they had enjoyed with their creator was severed. And as their ancestors, that's why we come into this world spiritually dead, separated from our creator, and needing to be born again by the Spirit of God through faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But they also began to die physically. And again, 
the whole universe began to die. And that's why the Bible tells us there is death and suffering. It was a result of man's sin, not the way God created the heavens and the earth. And Paul, in the New Testament, uh, repeats that, Therefore, through one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin. So according to Paul, what came first, death or sin? Sin came first. If evolution is true, it means that death, suffering, bloodshed uh, existed for millions and millions of years before Adam's sin. So let's look at a bit of the science. Uh, The general theory of evolution, this idea that somehow hundreds of millions of years ago, lifeless chemicals got together, formed the first so-called simple single-celled organism. Evolutionists have got absolutely no idea how that could happen. And uh, there's been a million-dollar prize out there for a long, long time for anybody that could give a reasonable answer to that quandary. They're never going to claim it. Uh, But over millions of years, that single-celled organism evolved into marine invertebrates, marine invertebrates into fish-like creatures, then into amphibious-type creatures. They evolved over millions of years more into reptiles, and over millions of years more reptiles evolved into birds and mammals, and mammals into man. And so students, uh, if you ever need to give a summary of evolution, this is it. Now students, hydrogen is a gas, which if left long enough, turns into people. <laughs> okay? But that's basically the theory of evolution. Now, what did Darwin propose as the mechanism for evolution? As he looked around the world, he saw different groupings of animals which seemed to be related to each other, and yet this variation, this, these differences between these various groups, including man. And Darwin believed that natural selection had done that. By the way, Darwin never came up with the idea of natural selection. Others, people like Edward Blythe, wrote scientific papers on natural selection Ed, uh, decades before Darwin. Darwin had actually read Blythe's papers. And Blythe saw natural selection as a God-created mechanism to help creatures to adapt and survive in different environments. But Darwin believed that given enough time, natural selection could lead to bacterium evolving into biologists, molecules to man, and maybe even frogs to princes. Well, the question is, can natural selection do that? Now, creation scientists and evolutionary scientists recognize that both your domestic dog species today and your wild dog species, your dingoes and wild dogs and that, all go back to common ancestry. So let's look at natural selection. Let's begin with a dog kind. The Bible talks about um, kinds, not species. So let's begin with a, a wolf kind. Maybe after the flood, uh, Noah had taken two of every kind of land-living, air-breathing animal and bird onto the ark. And after the flood, this wolf kind would have disembarked. Now we know we get one set of genes from our mother, and a set of genes from our father. So this original dog kind, they've got medium-length fur, and they've got the genetic information for short fur and for long fur. After the flood, they begin to have pups. And this pup here, he's inherited the genetic information for short fur from both the male 
and the female. These two here have received genetic information for short fur from the male, long fur from the female, and they've both got medium-length fur. And then this interesting fellow here, he's inherited the genetic information for long fur from both the male and the female, and he's uh, got this interesting hairstyle. Now, there's a lot of evidence that after the flood, there was a, an ice age, a couple of hundred years after the flood, an extended ice age. So let's put all of those pups in a very cold, hostile environment. Which of them would be the least likely to survive? Obviously, those ones, the short fur, medium length fur, the long fur dogs would be the most likely to survive, be able to have pups and breed and pass on their genetics to their pups. And all of their pups would have the same genetics, would have the long fur. So what has happened there? Selection has taken place, adaptation, variation has taken place, change has taken place. But nothing new has been created in that process. In fact, genetic information for short fur and medium fur has been lost. And that's more or less how natural selection operates. A little bit more involved than that, but certainly the principles are there. Natural selection creates nothing new. It only takes from existing information in the genome and preferentially selects for survival. So if we apply this to mankind, Adam and Eve would have had the genetic information for various skin shades and could have had children, both light-skinned and dark skin through various combinations of dominant and recessive genes. And so the Bible makes very clear we're all descended from Adam and Eve, their sons and daughters, Noah and his family, the only eight souls to survive that terrible catastrophic flood of Noah's day. And then after the, the confusion of languages at Babel, as people went into various geographical areas through change through natural selection adaptation, variations took part, took place, changes took place. And as I look around here this evening, every one of us are different. Every single one of us are different. Different face shapes, eye shapes, hair color, skin color, sizes. Um, but what is the, the difference that we tend to make the big deal about? Skin color. We call people black and white. So as they began to spread out from the Middle East there, uh, going to all parts of the world. By the way, just think of an ice age and all the water that would have been on much of the continents. The oceans would have been much lower, giving us an amazing understanding of one of the mechanisms, how animals and people would have spread out after Babel to all the different continents of the earth. And through natural selection, various people groups arose. And we call people black and white based on their skin color. Let's think about that. Here's my colleague, Dr. Don Batten. He's a plant biologist in Australia. And we would classify him as a white man. What color is he? Beige, pink, light brown, tan. I get all sorts of answers. I have a lot of fun at schools like this. I say, uh, if they've got white school uniforms, I tell them, look at the, the person next to you 
And if he's the color of his shirt, call an ambulance quick because he's in serious trouble. And they have a look and, and there's uproar as they realize nobody is white. None of us are white. And we would call this lady a black lady. What color is she? Dark brown. And we find as we look around the world that you find every skin shade in between light brown and dark brown. Because you see there is only one skin color. It's called melanin. And those of us that are a little bit melanin challenged, uh, we've only got the genetic information to produce a little bit of melanin. People that are darker brown skin, they've got the genetic information to produce lots of melanin. And think of this, melanin is a natural sunscreen. It helps to protect from the effects of the sun. And so as people after Babel came down into very hot climates, exposed to the sun, being born light-skinned children, dark-skinned children, who would be the most likely to survive? Dark-skinned children, more likely to marry, have children, and pass on their genetics to their children. And so there were genetic bottlenecks, the loss of information, of genetic information. But you bring that genetic information back together again, and some very interesting things happen. Here's a British couple. Uh, both of them had parents, one light brown skin and one dark brown skin. Do you want to see their twin baby girls? Maybe some of you have seen this. Brown eyes, dark hair, uh, dark hair, dark skin, blue eyes, fair hair, and fair skin. So you bring that genetic information back together again that would have been in Adam and Eve, and in one generation... You've got both ends of the so-called skin color spectrum. We did an article on them in our creation magazine a few years ago. Uh, here's, um, they are more recently, Remy and Kian, lovely young ladies. And uh, my colleague, Johanny, he spoke about this in George a couple of years back. And when he was finished, a gentleman stood up in the back and said, Tracy, here, I don't of us colors. And you know, he was probably right. Adam and Eve would have been mid-brown skin color because they had the genetic information to express both light-skinned and dark-skinned people. So look, evolutionists today recognize that natural selection creates nothing new. It cannot possibly create the information, the genetic information, for something to evolve from a, an amoeba to something like a horse, which is eyes and ears and fur and hooves and things that that bacterium does not have. That, where does that information come from? And what do we mean by information? Well, let's do a bit of a thought experiment here. Here is a bowl of soup. Let's say you've got a bowl of soup like this. You'd think nothing of it. Uh, maybe those alphabets were just randomly thrown in. But what would you think if you got a bowl of soup like this, what did you immediately know if you got that bowl of soup? You would know somebody did it, right? Somebody intelligent did that. You would know that the properties of water and, and the pasta and vegetables had got nothing to do with the arrangement of that specified complexity, that information that is conveyed to you. You would know that somebody intelligent did that. And the most intelligent person in the universe after God is 
Mom, that's right. Somebody got it. You're exactly right. That she's giving you a message. So that is information. And you looked at about 20 bits of information there, and you instinctively knew that could only come from intelligence, from personal intelligence. What about the three and a half billion bits of information in the DNA of every one of the trillions of cells in the human body, all arranged in the specific information-conveying sequence to spell out the instructions, the recipe for the cells to produce the human body or the body of a dog or whatever. The idea that that came about by random natural processes of time and chance goes against everything we know from experimental observational science. Well, evolutionists believe that to create that new information in the genome, it comes from mutations, from copying errors in the handing down of genetic information. And we are all constantly accumulating more and more copying errors from our parents and handing on to our children. It's like copying a a book, making a photocopy, and then a photocopy of a photocopy, and a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy. What happens? More and more error, more and more noise creeps in. And it's exactly the same with life. Every generation, every one of us here have got over 3 million bits, or 3 million mutations in our DNA. And as long as we don't receive the same mutated gene from both parents, normally the good gene expresses itself. If we, express, if we get the same mutated gene from mother and father, is often when these terrible genetic diseases like sickle cell anemia, albinism, Down syndrome, uh, then express themselves. Now that is the process that evolutionists believe led to the, uh, that every now and then, one of these mutations is beneficial. It adds new information to the genome. Richard Dawkins, the high priest of evolution, he was asked for one example of where a mutation had given new novel information to the genome. He could not give one example. There are a handful of claimed examples that even Evolutionists say no, and they give other mechanisms, other expressions for that. Sickle cell anemia is often presented as an, a proof of evolution. Um, the other one is uh, the antibiotic resistance and bacterium. People with this terrible disease, sickle cell anemia, many of them seem to be, they've got an immunity to malaria. And this, this is held up as proof of evolution. Here's Dr. Felix Konate Uhulu, a Ghanaian scientist, a world uh, uh, expert on sickle cell anemia. And he said the sickle hemoglobin is less appetizing for malarial parasite. So carriers are less likely to develop malaria, which is often fatal. The sickle cell gene is still a defect, not an increase in complexity or an improvement in function, which is being selected for. It's the same with antibiotic resistance in bacteria. Uh, It can give a benefit, but it doesn't provide any new information. And so we can safely say, stop following me. 
when we see that image, we are not related. Somebody asked me this morning about the so-called curse of, of Ham and that black people, they were taught as children that black people were descended from Ham and Ham had been cursed and, and so on. It's nonsense. There was no curse on Ham. The curse was on Ham's son, Canaan. And we're not even sure. To me, the Bible seems to indicate that that curse didn't even come from God. It came from Noah. And Noah had a bubbleus at the time. So how do we take him seriously? But there was no curse on Ham. The curse was on Canaan. And that was probably carried out when the Israelites came into the promised land, the land of Canaan. And the Canaanites were wiped out from the land. So the idea that black people are descended from Ham and, and they cursed uh, has absolutely no basis in Scripture. And the Bible tells us in Jesus Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, there's no male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. I'm going to finish up and just pass over a couple of things here. Uh, we looked at this this morning. Let's just move through. Let's just look at some of the consequences of trying to fit deep time and evolution into the Bible. The Bible defines day over and over again in the book of Genesis chapter 1 as a period of light and darkness, day and night, morning and evening, over and over again in Genesis chapter 1, day with a number. That defines for us the meaning of the word day. And if we look outside of Genesis, we find that day used with a number is used 410 times Outside of Genesis, it always means an ordinary day. Evening and morning, together without the word day, 38 times, it always means an ordinary day. Evening and morning, with day, used 23 times, it always means an ordinary day. Night and day, it's used 50 ti- 52 times, it ordinary, always means an ordin- ordinary 24-hour day. Exactly right. And so why do we try and make Genesis chapter 1, the word day, yom, mean something else when it is so clearly a normal 24-hour day? And so you know, these are important questions. People, young people especially have many, many questions relating to origins. And how often do you think people are exposed to this type of message? Once in a lifetime, maybe. Sometimes, maybe never. How often are people exposed to the other story of deep time, millions of years, death and suffering? How often are we exposed to that? Constantly, daily. Let me just deal with one last thing. Who do you think said this? There is only one race to which we all belong. That's the human race. We do, however, admit the existence of observable physical differences between various people groups. But these are differences are the result of a number of factors, chief of which has been geographical isolation. He could be a creation speaker. That is Robert Sabukwe, the founder of the PAC. You read his biography written by the Jewish friend of his, Benjamin Pogrand. He was a devout Christian with a powerful biblical worldview. And his biblical worldview gave him the basis for understanding that he was no less uh, uh, had entitled to respect 
and equality than were white people. We have a massive problem in our country in education, and uh, I heard this on the radio a couple of years ago. The oldest teacher in South Africa, 92 years old, still teaching, and she saw the, the absence of Christi- the Christian ethos and prayer in school as having an incredibly damaging effect on education. Missionary educated, taught in Christian schools at 92. She was still teaching. Um, she said she leaves for school at 7 o'clock in the morning, goes home at 3. She drives herself in her Toyota Corolla. It was Vuyo Mbuli, still late Vuyo Mbuli, interviewing her. He said, don't the police pull you over? She says, yeah, sometimes. But I taught all of them anyway, so they just let me go. (laughs) And let me finish with that. This is not about winning an argument. It's about the authority of God's word and ultimately the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're saved by faith in Christ. So we don't teach that you have to believe in biblical origins to be saved. But the Bible tells us that we are all descended from Adam and Eve. All of us here are family. And it's because of our descent from Adam and Eve, because we're descended from Adam, that we're spiritually needing to be born again. It's because of our descent from them that we are also physically dying. But you know, we've all got another relative and that is Jesus Christ. Perfectly man, a perfectly God, but perfect man. Born of the seed of the woman, of his mother Mary. And the Gospel of Luke gives us his biological ancestry through Mary, King David, Abraham, back to Adam and Eve. If evolution is true, Adam and Eve never existed. And many of your Christians, like Francis Collins, that have uh, uh, accepted evolutionary storytelling, and believes that we've evolved from ape-like creatures over hundreds of thousands of years, have rejected the idea of a historical Adam and Eve. Well, why are we dying then? And so these are very important questions. Jesus Christ was born as one of us, that he could be our substitute upon the cross. Because a bull or a goat or a lamb could never take our place be our substitute upon the cross as our kinsman redeemer, our family redeemer. And with that, let's leave it there. Thank you so much for coming this evening. It's been a, a great blessing to speak to you and uh, also to the, the group this morning. God bless you.